on China and the World Trade Organization. And I saw your name listed as having testified, was it last year, I guess, on China's progress vis-a-vis -vis its, its accession commitments. Yes. And, of course, I had seen your name around um, lots of other places in the course of, of the work I've been doing. Well, I've really been focusing uh, in uh, recent times on intellectual property issues. But, you know, that's Okay, okay. So my my thesis, and, and I'm in no way married to this thesis, nor am I an expert on the issue, but, but the question that I'm exploring is this idea that a well-functioning global trading system requires agreements between the traders that allow countries some protection for their own economies while at the same time facilitating the benefits of trade. So it kind of balances protection when it's necessary with trade that is free enough to yield the benefits that we know it does. And, but in the absence of that, countries will resort to either or and or bilateral and regional trade agreements that undermine that global trading system or domestic protectionist policies to, to provide that kind of protectionism that, that I talked about, e.g. against other countries' mercantilist policies. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. Okay, okay. So, so share your thoughts with me, if you would, Pat, on, on first on the idea that a well-functioning global trading system requires that balance between protectionism and the facilitation of trade. some private ownership, you'll have 
Mm-hmm. You'll have the Japanese system, or it's increasingly the Asian system, uh, where uh, you will have uh, uh, a disguised protectionism uh, in which, through a variety of means, uh, those countries operate uh, sanctuary markets. And those sanctuary markets will operate uh, in a manner as uh, in the auto industry. The Japanese, uh, simply through a variety of means, will not allow foreign cars uh, into the Japanese market. Uh, I look up some of the writings on Forbes magazine, or even Singleton, on that. Okay. They Yeah. Is the U.S. Uh, requires 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I, I had missed that, but I'll definitely pick it up. Uh, you got good reviews, though. It has absolutely no influence on thinking of our government. Yeah, so, so that's the question, that it, it seems like there are these, these sensible solutions out there. Why is it, then, that U.S. policymakers haven't haven't taken a hold of these sensible solutions, even at the same time that they, you know, talk about labeling China a currency manip manipulator and and so they they talk about reactionary strategies, but they don't talk about these kind of structural solutions. Why is that? It seems very counterintuitive that, and certainly I, I believe that it's true, but I, I don't understand why businesses would oppose some of the solutions that you've talked about, oppose even labeling China a currency manipulator, given wow. that, given that, you know, they do talk about the... Um, disadvantages they suffer in China, for example, with IP violations and the forced technology transfer, that sort of thing. Well, I mean, uh, you wind up with several things. Uh, the uh, business community 
side deals with the Chinese and Japanese and uh, other governments. They have a tax code and system that allows them, at this point, to keep $2 trillion of untaxed profits offshore, uh, which uh, they can continue to use. So one of the things those corporations want are foreign manufacturing platforms where they can maintain easy access to service the American market. And that has been the goal of American corporations since uh, the late 1980s, early 1990s, in trade uh, uh, negotiations. NAFTA was the model, but then you go to CAFTA, to China's extension, uh, you go to uh, the regional trade deals uh, that we have uh, put in. They want to access, I mean, each of, each of them are driven by their own profit uh, demand, and none of them are really concerned about the whole of the U.S. economy. That's a responsibility of Congress and the President, and the Congress and President finance their campaign from donations of people who don't who uh, unfettered open markets uh, is to their economic interest. Okay, right. So uh, how how would you talked about the U.S. having a, a tailored trade strategy? Yeah. How would that impede trade for these these companies that want to manufacture offshore? for domestic and global markets? Uh, basically, you're just, uh, you'll treat their foreign operations as foreign companies. And uh, you would just simply say, uh, out of China, uh, we will take uh, X amount of a exports, let's say, in broad industrial lines. China would always favor their own domestic companies, uh, these American corporations, uh, would then be forced to relocate the U.S come under U.S. regulation, uh, U.S. taxes, et cetera. I uh, the see. Pro the profits that, that they uh, now hold offshore would come here and be taxed. I see. Okay. So does, does a, a tailored trade strategy exist within the WTO, or, or what's the fate of the WTO in your ideal world? Well, uh, nations uh, uh, agree upon such arrangements, the WTO would uh, uh, acknowledge it. The WTO is for a rules-based system, mm -hmm. uh, and it would only deal uh, where there is a rules-based system. If countries agree, it's going to be unfettered trade, it's going to be based upon the rules. Uh, the WTO would monitor those rules, and it would be a place, as it is now, if you had disputes, you could uh, have them at, uh, adjudicated if U.S. had an arrangement with uh, Japan that basically says we're going to have a balanced trade relationship uh, with each other, and we agree to do it in these areas, uh, that would be between uh, the two countries and the bilateral relationship. If you wind up with bilateral relationships uh, adversely affecting other countries such as South Korea or China, then you would take that to the WTO and see how do you get a resolution where uh, Korea would not be disadvantaged. Okay.
it's fair to say that because the WTO exists, it kind of it, it allows policymakers in the United States and, and other rules-based economies to say, well, trade isn't perfect, but it, it works pretty well. We have the WTO, and then kind of ignore the very real need to do something about uh, mercantilist policies in China and elsewhere? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, what it does is it gives them an excuse uh, to go for process instead of result. We'll take it to the WTO. Okay, right. Yeah. One thing that I was struck by, particularly struck by in reading the um, WTO's uh, China trade report was that they, the WTO really didn't make an effort to look beyond China's official statements. So the the report said, well, China says that they have no technology transfer requirements on the books. Well, okay, but we know from all of the the multinational corporations that operate there that they have implicit technology transfer requirements. Absolutely, and they're harshly enforced. All one needs to do is go to the Super 301 report of the uh, USTR. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. It's all there. Okay. Um, interesting. I I wonder, and and tell me if this isn't your area of expertise, but it, it as as you were talking, it came into my mind. What? Obviously, the the. American Japanese relation trade relationship was um, very similar to the u s China trade relationship, you know, very heated uh, back in the seventies. What changed that you don't hear people talking about um, I wrote a book about that called Agents of Influence came out in nineteen ninety and what happened is uh, the Chinese
Right, right. So what's the... It, it sounds like you're not at all optimistic about uh, U.S. policymakers putting together this sort of tailored trade strategy. What's... Yeah. So what does that mean for the future of the U.S. economy? Not good until we change it. Uh, structural corruption uh, that we now have uh, has led to a wipeout of our manufacturing base. We lost about 5 million manufacturing jobs over the past 20 years as we pursued this uh, rules-based economy. Every time a trade agreement comes up, same old arguments, which are badly false, uh, are presented, uh, and uh, we lose our capacity uh, as a country uh, to manufacture. Uh, we're seeing a lower standard. Uh, let's put it another way. We're going to run probably No, it's not. It's just totally off the table. Which is interesting because it seems like usually blaming others is a good. And and I I, I don't mean that in a, a a negative way, but usually you know talking about well it's because of China's mercantilist policies, and obviously that's the trade imbalances are one reason, not the only reason, right, that our economy is in trouble. Hmm? But it, it, it is surprising that they're not talking about it at all. Well, our, uh, uh, let's talk about derivative issues from trade. Uh, it's the way we tax. I wrote a book called Saving Capitalism, and I have the whole section of taxes. And fundamentally, uh, what I argue there, 151 other countries have a value-added tax. A value-added tax uh, is uh, is trade-friendly. Uh, if uh, Germany uh, sends a fifty-thousand-dollar Mercedes-Benz into the United States, Germany which has a nineteen percent value-added tax. The government rebate uh, ten thousand dollars to the Mercedes-Benz Corporation. So that car comes into the U.S. at forty thousand. Take a Cadillac Escalade at fifty thousand. Into the German market because we do not have a VAT. Uh, the Germans can add uh, a, a VAT equivalent of 10,000. So the German, uh, in the German market, Cadillac is going for $60,000. So because the Germans use a VAT and we do not, uh, we wind up the German product has an edge in the U.S. market. And the American product has a disadvantage 
in the German market. Well, the solution to that for a company such as Ford is you shift your manufacturing to Europe or to Germany. Right. Uh, uh, we, uh, uh, former Senator Ernest Hollings, Fritz Hollings, uh, does a column. And uh, he estimates uh, that uh, if we would uh, eliminate the 35% corporate income tax and substitute a 7% that, or that, that instead of collecting last year $189 billion of revenues from the corporate tax, we would collect almost $800 billion. Wow. Major difference. Yeah. Just in the tax system, the way you do the taxes, you wouldn't have that two hundred, that two trillion bucks of profit offshore being the U.S. Treasury taxed. You wouldn't have cheating. Uh, a vast, uh, hundred and other, hundred and fifty other one other countries. It's very simple to administer. Again, because we don't talk about trade, we don't talk about uh, the create consequences of how we tax. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Well, it's good stuff. It is. And it's it's too bad that nobody on the Hill is listening. <laughs> or no, they're not I mean, doing all, anything all, about all it. All I want to do is Affordable Care Act. They want to vote it down for the 34th time in the House. You know. Yep. Yep. Well, Pat, I don't, I don't have, sorry, go ahead. Uh, the problem is you only have a handful of members of Congress that understand things or even care about these things at this point. But again, that's because of Citizens United and the way we finance our campaign. Right, because I was going to say, well, maybe it would help if we had some... You know, trade experts, economists in, I mean, maybe not economists, certainly trade experts in Congress, but it sounds like they, they can't get there, right? Oh, well, there are some. Uh, Sherrod Brown is very knowledgeable about this. Uh, Marcy Kaptur of Ohio is very knowledgeable uh, on, uh, on these things. Jeff Bingman of Mexico, who's leading, is very knowledgeable uh, on these matters. Frank So you had, you know, you have really sharp uh, members uh, that could have just given you the, everything I just did, uh, but uh, they're they're pushed to the side or they're not listened to, and they get frustrated, like Byron Dorgan, senator from South Dakota, and leave. Right. You know, I, I gave a speech the other night to the Annapolis Economic Club, and they say our problems are not economic, our problems are political. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can solve all these problems very quickly. If we shift from uh, corporate to a bad, we pick up another half uh, trillion dollars a year. Uh, if we would reduce our uh, defense budget from $700 uh, billion to $400 billion, I mean, you know, we spent 40% of all the in the world uh, uh, if we would uh, put in the currency exchange things the three things and we'd be running the budget surplus mm-hmm. 
rates in. Uh, we're going back to the federal tax rates, which is 39.5% not marginal rate uh, at the end of the year. That'll produce a half trillion a year of additional revenue. Do the math and keep the tax rates, your budget automatically is balanced. And, you know, go ahead and spend that mother baby. <laughs> right. This is, this is not rocket science. Right, yep. Which makes it even more frustrating. Yeah, it does. It really does. Hmm. I don't know what the answer is. I don't either. Or, you know, I've done, I think, eight books on various aspects of it. Uh, solutions are not a problem. It's politics. Yeah, yeah. I even tried that. I uh, tried to get Ross Perot like didn't get and didn't succeed at that. Well, so I wonder if it'll take, you know, hitting the the proverbial bottom t for people to realize that we need to get over the politics. Well, mm -hmm. you know, I'm hopeful that a Barack Obama in a second administration, when he's not running, uh, and uh, take a look. He's Mm-hmm. It's going to take uh, a politician at the top uh, who is uh, not worried about his next election or her next election. Uh, the next best chance would be with a Hillary Clinton in 2016. Well, there's always hoping. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. 